You know, one of the songs that we sang this morning spoke of waiting or anticipating something. As believers, we are awaiting the Lord's return and we are anticipating heaven, are we not? But what is heaven? How do you picture heaven? You know, we're all looking forward to it. But what do you think heaven will really be like? And what do you expect to find when you get there? What do you see in your mind's eye when you think about heaven? Do you, do you see clouds and harps and streets of gold and white robes and angels and a throne or what? Well, I doubt that it will come as a surprise to anyone who really knows me. But I don't picture heaven as a place of fluffy clouds and golden harps. I picture heaven as paradise restored. When I dream of heaven, I dream about the Garden of Eden and what it must have been like to, to walk with God in a, in a beautiful, exotic garden. I think back to the first time I walked through the redwood forest and how I felt overwhelmed by awesomeness and beauty, feeling that God was there walking with me. I felt that that must be what heaven will be like, green and lush and invigorating and full of life. But is that dream justifiable? I think it is. In the first letter to the seven churches of Revelation, we find this promise. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, the word paradise comes from an old Persian word for the walled parks of kings and nobles. It pictures a garden like the one God originally planted in Eden. So I don't think we're remiss in thinking of heaven, our eternal home, as a restoration of the original home God created for us. But let's see if my dream fits with the final vision John had of heaven. He begins with a vision of the new heaven and earth. Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. We're going to stop there. You know, the first thing John says about heaven, about the eternal home that God will share with his people after judging the world, removes the nebulous feeling most have about heaven. Instead of seeing some vague, ethereal kingdom inhabited by phantom-like spirits, John sees a new heaven and a new earth without a body of water that divides people. He sees something with substance, something a man can plant his feet upon. Now, it is true that Something that's going to be eternal can't be made of the same stuff our present world is made of. So this new heaven and earth will be of a different nature. It won't be physical 
as we now know physical to be, but it will have substance. It'll be a new heaven and a new earth, not just a heavenly realm somewhere off there in space. In the 20th chapter, John saw this present earth and heaven flee away at the sight of God upon his throne of judgment, and now he sees a new heaven and a new earth. Now, whether this new heaven and earth will be totally new from another realm altogether or simply a miraculous remake of this present universe, the Scripture isn't clear. Some passages seem to indicate it will be totally new. Others seem to picture it as a remade universe. The Apostle Peter spoke of the new heavens and earth in the third chapter of his second letter. There in verse 10, he said, The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and its works will be burned up. And in verse 12, he continues by saying the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Now, that certainly gives the impression that this present universe will be completely dissolved. But a few verses earlier, he compared the coming fires of judgment to the flood which he said destroyed the world that existed at that time. Now, the flood did not annihilate this planet, even though it did change it significantly. And that could be similar to what will happen when this present heaven and earth pass away and a new heaven and earth appear. But irrespective of how God chooses to form the new heaven and earth, the fact remains that we will inhabit a new earth in which, as Peter tells us, righteousness dwells. But again, we ask, what will that new earth be like? In the third chapter of Acts, Peter said Jesus would return at the time of the restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Now, the term restoration indicates that the new earth will be like the original, only restored. That when Jesus returns, he will restore the earth to the way it was before sin invaded it. In other words, the new earth will be a paradise restored. The pictures the prophets painted of the new heaven and earth seem to bear this out. They speak of a time of universal peace and joy and intimate knowledge of and fellowship with the Lord. They even picture the animals as being in harmony with one another. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the kid, the cow and bear will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. Now that may very well picture the way things were in Eden, when at least the animals within the garden were at peace with one another. This may be more than simply an image of universal peace. It may actually indicate that animals will be in heaven, that they will inhabit the new earth. Now, 
The ones that are there won't be there because they've been good animals. <laughs> okay? <laughs> They'll simply be there to make our eternal home a place that's full of beauty and variety of life. You know, God did not have to create all the forms of life he did to accomplish his purposes when he created the world. He could have simply created a place and us. He could have even so designed us that we wouldn't need to eat. But he didn't. He created a world full of beauty and variety and pleasures for us to enjoy. He didn't just give us an existence. He gave us a garden to live in. I think the same will be true of heaven. It won't just be an eternal existence. That sounds horribly boring. Just an eternal existence. But that's not what God has in store for us. It will be life at its fullest. Something we can anticipate. And it'll not only be a life full of peace and harmony between all of creation. It'll be a life of peace and perfect fellowship between creation and creator. For in the midst of the new earth will be the holy city. Verses 2 through 4. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the first things have passed away. Now, we're going to take a close look at the holy city next week when it's described in more detail in Revelation. So we're not going to go into all the details of it this morning. But we do want to get a basic understanding of the holy city and understand the reason for its existence on the new earth. Well, John begins by saying he saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, since the Bible consistently refers to the church as the bride of Christ, this is apparently a picture of the church. And this is true in spite of the fact that we might not expect to see the church coming down out of heaven. We would expect to see Christ coming down out of heaven. But it does make sense once we realize that by this time, Christians will have already risen to meet the Lord in the air. And that after we have risen and the earth has been remade by fire the new, and the new earth made ready for us to inhabit, the church will descend as the city of God. And a picture of the church as the holy city or the city of God is very appropriate at this point because God will actually be dwelling in the church. 
when it descends to the new earth. The marriage between the lamb and his bride will have taken place. No longer will the church be separated from Christ by a barrier that keeps physical and spiritual at a distance from one another. And it's true that Christ inhabits the church now. He lives in our hearts by the agency of the Holy Spirit. But then we will both have the same nature. We will be like him and we'll live together. That's what the voice from the throne confirmed in John's vision. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. and He shall dwell among them. And they shall be his people. And God himself shall be among them. When the church descends to the new earth, God will actually dwell in her midst. The tabernacle of God will be with us. Now, that word throws us just a little bit. But the word tabernacle had special significance for the early Christians. The Greek word for tabernacle, the tent God had the Israelites construct in the wilderness as his dwelling place among them, sounds very much like the Hebrew word for presence, Shekinah. And since to have God's tabernacle with you meant to have his presence with you, the Christians began to use the word tabernacle to indicate the presence of God among them. When John referred to the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus becoming flesh in John 1.14, he said the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word he used for dwelt actually means tabernacled. So what we have pictured here is God setting up residence among his people in the holy city. That means the holy city is the church, but it's also more than the church. It's the dwelling place of God in the midst of the church. Perhaps we should think of the holy city as the capital of the new earth. Our heavenly home will not be confined to a city. So those of us who love the country don't have to worry about living in an urban setting for all eternity. But the holy city will be at the center of our heavenly home. The holy city will be where God dwells among us on the new earth. And it will be from there that God ministers to us. And the first thing John is told God will do from the holy city is wipe away every tear from our eyes. And that does seem to indicate that there will be tears in heaven, at least initially. There may very well be tears over the fact that a loved one on earth isn't going to be able to share the glories of heaven with us. But even that sorrow will be met by the comforting hand of God. God himself will wipe away every tear. That's the kind of personal relationship we will have with our creator on the new earth. He will personally meet our needs. 
And then, once our tears are wiped away by the hand of our Heavenly Father, once again we've been comforted by our Lord, there will no longer be a need for tears. Death will be gone. And so will all mourning and crying and pain. For the first things will have passed away. As Isaiah said, the former things shall not be remembered for come to mind. We will be in the paradise of God with free access to our Heavenly Father in the Holy City. And at that point, nothing else will matter. But for now, we do agonize over the fact that not everyone will be there. We do fear for those we love as well as for ourselves. And that's why God personally spoke the promise and warning that he did to close this vision. Why he held out to all an invitation to partake of the water of life. Verses 5 through 8. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. At this point, God actually speaks from the throne to affirm the truthfulness of the vision John has seen. He personally guarantees that he is making all things new, just as John had witnessed. In fact, it's as if it's already been done. It's that certain. The Alpha and Omega, the source of everything and the consummation of everything, guarantees that the new heaven and new earth is coming. He also holds out the promise to give to any who thirst from the spring of the water of life without cost. That eternal life is available to everyone who really longs for it. You know, Jesus promised that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be satisfied. And that's the promise God is making here. Any who want eternal life can have it. It's a free gift that's made available to all through Christ. It's not something you have to buy or earn, but something you accept as a gift from your Savior. You do, however, have to want it enough to overcome the temptation to give it up for something else. Now, it's not easy to wait for an inheritance. 
Sometimes the temptation to sell out the future for today is very strong. Esau was willing to give up his birthright for a bowl of soup because he wanted his desires satisfied immediately. And a lot of Christians quench their thirst for righteousness and life eternal with the things of this world. They allow themselves to become polluted by the world. And that's actually what the word abominable means, polluted. They lose faith in the promise of God and therefore decide to go for whatever they can get in this life at any cost, even if it takes lying or immorality or murder to get it. They think they can replace the righteousness God demands with that offered by man-made religions or even demons and still be considered good people. Or they just give up on being good when they know to do so will cost them something they don't want to give up. People like that don't have a real thirst for the things of God. And as a result, they will not have a part in the new heaven and earth. They will not be a part of the holy city. Instead, they will be consigned to the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone. Now, whether that is meant to be taken literally or figuratively really doesn't matter. Those who are cut off from the source of love and life for all eternity will be in unbelievable torment. But God doesn't desire that for anyone. That's why he holds out the invitation to partake freely from the water of life now. And why he's given us a vision of what life will be in paradise. He wants to make us thirsty for the things of God. He wants us so hungry and thirsty for righteousness that nothing else will be able to take our minds off of it. And he wants us to make others hungry for the same thing. That's why we share this vision with others. It's not enough for you to catch the vision yourself. You're to share the vision. Revelation is not a closed book. Hopefully it has opened your mind and now you have something beautiful to share with your loved ones, with your neighbors, with your coworkers. That vision is ours to share. We want the things that are higher and nobler to allure our sight and the sight of those we love. So together, we will hasten to him to partake of the water of life. So what about you this morning? Have you been charmed by the world's delights? That's so easy. Our whole society is built 
on charming us and making us into consumers and thinking our life consists in the abundance of the things we possess. Everything, everything is focused on taking our eyes off heaven. May the visions we get in Revelation reignite our hearts and our thirst and our hunger for the things of God. That's why we've been spending these months studying this amazing book. We want to fall in love again with what God is holding out for us. And we want that vision to be so strong that nothing, nothing at all, can take our eyes off. That's huge, and that's so hard. It's my prayer. It's my prayer that this glimpse of paradise restored has helped give you the resolve you need to hasten to the Lord while there's still time. And so we invite you, if you want to drink from the spring of the water of life, if you want to receive the gift that's offered through Christ, we invite you to come and take that water, take that life, take hold of that future this morning. Let's stand.